everyone. One exciting announcement before I get to the material for, well, technically a couple weeks ago. Uh, spring break is coming up, and as a result, I'm going to be spending a lot of time catching up, making sure my outlines are there. Uh, there's a few things I need to do for, uh, well, I, I've obviously got these uh, episodes to do for property. I've got some to do for contracts as well as for civil procedure. And then I, I do want to give an update eventually about uh, how FOIA first year oral arguments went uh, with the semifinals. I didn't make it to finals, kind of a relief, but I am proud of how I did. Uh, up to and through fi- uh, semifinals, and as a result, uh, I'll get into that in a completely different episode. But I am giving myself an hour to catch up, so to speak, today before spring break starts. I have a cutoff time, and as a result, I'm going to get as much material done before that time. That means today, talking about property, I'm a few weeks behind, so I'm going to be very dependent on my notes. I should be able to make it through a couple of episodes. The first one, this one, is going to be about concurrent ownership. It's going to be a slightly longer one just because there's a lot that goes into concurrent ownership. And then I might be able later to start leases as well and maybe have one or two episodes about specific parts of lease principles. So let's go ahead and get started with concurrent ownership. Like I said, again, a lot of this is going to be reliant on my notes and the outline, but ultimately I think it's going to be good information, accurate information, even though it is a few weeks old in my mind. So concurrent ownership. Well, what this means is that people can own pieces of land or property together at the same time. And there are several concurrent estates. Actually, when I say several, I only mean a few. There's three. But there's a tenancy in common, a joint tenancy, and a tenancy by the entirety. So what is a tenancy in common? Well, it is the most common kind of concurrent estate. But how it works is that A conveys land or property to B and C. So in this instance, B and C have the right to use all the land and have their interest is is divided equal. B has 50%, C has 50%. When the land is sold, they still have an interest in that land. B gets 50%, C gets 50%. However, those interests are freely alienable, divisible, and descendable. And there's more that we'll get into that later on. So a joint tenancy, second is when A conveys to B and C as joint tenants with the right of survivorship. The necessary language here is as joint tenants, but it's better to add on to the end of that saying with the right of survivorship. The right of survivorship is a defining feature of joint tenancy. It's another defining feature of the tenancy by the entirety. But what that means is that when B dies, C will get what B had. Or if C dies first, B will get what C had. Whichever one gets the remainder of the property, that's the principle of survivorship. However, to create a joint tenancy, there are four elements that need to be met. There needs to be unity of time, 
unity of title, unity of interest, and unity of possession, meaning they need to get it at the same time. They need to have title over the same land, getting it at that same time. They ha- need to have the same amount of interest. If B has 50 and uh, C has 30 and uh, D has 20, that's not a joint tenancy. That's a tenancy in common because they have disproportionate interest. And then also possession, meaning both parties are using all of that land or that interest. So in other words, if the parts receive the property at a different time, a different deed, different interest, or unequal rights, well, then it's not a joint tenancy, it's a tenancy in common. As such, the interest is alienable, but once it is alienated, it becomes a tenancy in common. It is not divisible or descendable. A tenancy by the entirety is just a joint tenancy within a marriage. Uh, So the way this works is A conveys to B and C as tenants by the entirety. B and C in this situation are going to be a married couple. And so the only difference is that instead of having those four elements of unity, we add the fifth one. It's unity of marriage. If this tenancy, the only way to end this tenancy is either through the death of one of the spouses the divorce of the spouses, or if the spouses agreed together to end the tenancy by the entirety. So our case here was James v. Taylor. Pretty much what it says is that if there's any ambiguity in the language, well, then we're going to assume that it is a tenancy in common. Uh, The case that was issued here was whether or not the language created a joint tenancy or a tenancy um, in common. And the reason for that is because it was confusing. The language was there, but the intent was missing. And so they were trying to figure out how that worked. Uh, So ultimately what we get down to is that uh, the intent doesn't really matter so much. We're just looking at the language, and if the language is not clear, it's going to be a tendency in common. Sorry, one second. I'm going to take off my jacket. This is a little warm. Okay, so those are our four modern concurrent states. Let's talk about severance now because severance is, and partition as well, uh, those are going to be our two ways to end some of these joint tenancies or tenancy in commons. Severance is when you have a joint tenancy. It only applies to joint tenancies. All right, and that severance occurs if one party conveys their interest to another. So this is the example that we were talking about earlier when um, A conveys to B and C. They each have their 50%. And then B goes ahead and gives 30% to D. And so B in this instance would have 20%. D would have 30 and then C would uh, still have their 50%. But you notice here that there's no longer unity of possession. Uh, They all, uh, sorry, unity of interest. Their interest is different. And as a result, there can no longer be a joint tenancy, and consequently, the joint tenancy is severed and becomes a tenancy in common. Uh, That is the case, uh, even if the land is leased. 
Elise does not sever. That is another thing to note. And we get that from our case, Tenhout versus Boswell. Um, the thing to note from that case, though, is that whichever is most likely to sever it first, and that's what's going to ultimately sever, whether it's the end of the lease or if it is the uh, life of the person who leases. Okay, so that's severance. What about partition? Partition is when you're really dividing up disputed land. So if there's a conflict that can't be resolved, then the parties are going to go to court to get a partition. And the point of this is to end the co-tenancy and distribute the assets of that property. So our case here is Arkland Co. versus Harper. Harper was a homestead on some coal land. Uh, Arkland had bought all the land surrounding, including some of the family members of Harper who had this interest. It was a um, joint tenancy, or maybe it was a tenancy in common, I believe. Uh, anyways, Harper, a few of the kids wouldn't sell to Ark, and Ark was saying, okay, now let's partition this. We'll divide it up, and I'll sell the rest to you guys, pretty much. Um, or I'll buy the rest from you. So our takeaways from this case is that there are three options to resolve a dispute. First, you can sell the property and divide it equally between the co-tenants. Second, you can buy out the other party. That's what our client had done in a lot of these situations. And third, you can ask the court to partition. And there are two ways to partition. First, you can partition by sell, which is where you sell the property and then divide it equally between all the co-tenants according to their interests. Or you can partition by kind, which is where you literally go and you map out what spots are going to be whose and based off of their percentage of how much they own and interest and such as that. And it's a physical cutoff. It's not going to be selling and dividing interest. It's going to be specifically cutting and dividing the land. Hi, I'm Dr. Miranda Melcher, host of the Just Access podcast. We bring you amazing interviews from the world of human rights and access to justice, from Dunja Miatovic, Council of Europe Commissioner for Human Rights, to Liz Evenson, International Justice Director at Human Rights Watch. Whether you're a law student or legal professional, human rights activist, or just want to stay up to date on what's happening with the world, the Just Access podcast is your go-to for inspirational stories and fascinating discussions about the state of human rights today. Search for Just Access on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our default rule is when we ask a court to partition is that we want to partition by kind. So there needs to be a good reason not to partition by kind if we want to partition by sell instead, and that is because some parties may not want to sell. So what does the party who wants the partition by sell to show? Uh, The party has to show no convenience. Uh, It would be inconvenient to partition. They need to show that the interests of the parties would be promoted by the sell, both parties. They need to show that the other parties' interests would not be prejudiced by the sell. Uh, They need to show that it will maximize economic value. 
And then also there needs to, this is like our fifth element, uh, shows that there's a lack of evidence of longstanding ownership and sentiment. So our big takeaway from all of this when looking at what the party must show is they need to show both financial interests and then sentimental or the lack of sentimental interests as well. And the court needs to factor in both of those to determine whether or not to partition this land by kind or by sell. Okay, so now we have two more parts left of co-tenancy. Uh, first, what are the rights and duties of co-tenants? And then second, uh, how do we understand what how marital property works as well? Let's talk about the co-tenant rights and duties. Our case here is Est Estevez, can't pronounce it, probably said it wrong, likely said it wrong. Uh, this is a case where parents and a son were co-tenants in a home. The son had moved out after putting in some work into the home and the parents continued to live in the home. And so now the whole issue here is do the parents own rent, owe rent to their son for the time that he wasn't there? Or when the home is sold, does the son get part of that? Does the Do the parents get all of it? How much uh, does the son have to pay uh, for caring for mortgages, all these kind of things that may be rights and duties that co-tenants have to have. So we have several rules that we need to follow. Uh, the first rule is that if parties create their own rules, well, then we're going to follow their rules as far as who does what and who uh, is responsible for what. But most of the time, parties aren't going to give what they're responsible for. It's pretty typical. And that was the case here. And to account for this, courts and legislatures have worked together and to determine what the responsibilities are. And they pass statutes and laws and common law to determine what these responsibilities are. So as a result, we have five main responsibilities. First is that each co-tenant is responsible for their pro-rata share. Uh, so... If the son owns 50 and the parents own 50, they're each responsible for 50% of the costs and expenses that go into it. However, if the son is not living there, the parents do not owe rent to a co-tenant who is out of possession unless if that person was ousted. Uh, the parents changed the locks or wrote to the son saying, you're no longer welcome here. Uh, if there's no ouster, well, then they do not owe rent. If there is an ouster, they may owe rent because the son in that instance would still have some rights. Third rule, improvement cannot compel contribution, uh, but it does increase the co-tenant's share at partition. So what's this saying? Meaning if the son went and improved the home, he cannot ask for more but if you're part if the land is partitioned it does go into that so say uh, the son goes and puts a hot tub on top of the house and uh, he cannot compel the parents to pay for half of the hot tub but at the end of it if the hot tub increased the value of the home well, then he'll get the, how much that increased that value by when the land is partitioned. Okay, so fourth, profits from the land, meaning uh, from rent, or if you are mining 
uh, resources, uh, whether it's trees or minerals, uh, those are going to be divided pro rata shares. Uh, so if one party is growing a tree farm, the other's not living there, both parties are still going to get 50% of those resources. And finally, is that there's a confidential relationship that exists between uh, co-tenants. So if a co-tenant purchases the line holder's claim against the property, they must give the other co-tenant a reasonable time to pay and share and acquire proportionate interest. You may need to rewind that 15 seconds to hear it again. Uh, there was a lot of jargon there, uh, even for me. But that's what that is. Okay, so those are the rights and duties. Let's talk now about marital property, and this will be the last thing that we talk about for code uh, concurrent ownership. So marital property, there's two main approaches. There's the separate property system, and there's the community property system. The separate property system is the majority approach, while the community property system is only adopted by nine states. So how does this work? For both systems, spouses have rights that can be divided into three different kinds. Uh, first, what are their rights during marriage? What are their rights at divorce? And who owns what at death? Okay, so during the marriage for the separate property system. During marriage, anything that is owned by one party prior to the marriage continues to be owned by that property. However, they can choose to have concurrent ownership or they can gift that property to one another. At divorce, the property that was owned by each is divided in a way that is just and equitable and fair. So this is gains that are done during the marriage, not before. And that's how that's going to work. So these are going to include factors of who contributed more during the marriage, who has the most income needs, uh, who has the most health concerns, uh, dependents who uh, they have custody over, those kind of things. And again, that's going to be based off of who generates what during the marriage. So at death, the surviving spouse is going to get what is called a forced share that they can either take through the will or if there's nothing in the will, they're just going to have a defined portion of the decedent's estate, and that's going to be defined by the statute. It's either going to be one-third or one-half, uh, whichever is more according uh, to the will or uh, the... Sorry, let, let me go ahead and say this again. The surviving spouse has a forced share. That forced share can be determined in the will, but that forced share is not to be any less than what the statute says, whether that statute says they get one-third of the property or one-half of the property. It's usually one of the two, depending on the jurisdiction you're in. So that way, the surviving spouse gets at least something of the estate. So what that means is that if the will goes ahead and devises all of the property to the, descent, uh, to the heirs, well, then the spouse is still going to get one-third or one-half, depending on the jurisdiction. They're still going to take their forced share. Okay, so that's how the separate property system works. Let's talk about the community property system. Same thing, during marriage, anything earned by either spouse is going to be owned equally by both spouses. Anything owned prior is still going to be owned separately. And this is different because 
during the marriage for a separate property system. What you earn is what you keep. If a person's a lawyer and a person's a doctor, income from the lawyer goes to the lawyer, income from the doctor goes to the doctor, and anything purchased out of that lawyer's income belongs to the lawyer, anything purchased out of that doctor's income belongs to the doctor, all that kind of stuff. At divorce, though, the property is divided equally because it's a community, but some states are still going to consider some of the distribution factors uh, that were mentioned in the other. Uh, Previous property is not subject to this division, so if a spouse owned a home prior, then that's not going to be sold and divided equally. At death, the decedent can devise up to half of the shared property because they own 50% half and all the other previously owned property that they have. So lawyer dies, can sell the home that, well, can devise their home previously from the marriage and then can devise up to half of what they have because they have a 50% interest. That's going to be those two things. just a couple more things to note about the uh, co-tenancy in marriage. Going back to the tenancy by the entirety uh, is that there are several benefits that come from this. Note that this occurs in marriage. Uh, some of these benefits are the right of survivorship. Uh, there's no unilateral severance, meaning you need to have uh, permission to sever uh, the tenancy by the entirety. And there are creditor protections, and the reason for this is because if one spouse does something because they, their property is all shared, then you can't have a credit against the spouse who did that thing wrong because that property is still tied to the spouse who didn't do that thing that is wrong. Uh, the only exception to this is government. Uh, the government can still put tax liens on people uh, even when they... Uh, have this other creditor protections. A couple other th- things uh, to note as far as defining marital property, uh, the majority approach is uh, that d- professional degrees is not defined as marital property. Uh, there are a couple of exceptions to that, but majority says uh, a JD degree is not marital property, a nursing degree is not marital property. Uh, and then as far as Unmarried couples go uh, that are living together. Uh, there are some jurisdictions that say there should be a claim for uh, palimony, and that's uh, the compensation for living together. But the best approach is really to just have cohabitating couples enter into a contract uh, to protect their financial interests, either that or get married. Uh, there's tons of benefits to just getting married. That would be definitely the recommended way to go. So that is... Co, um, sorry, concurrent ownership. What do we talk about? Let's just sum it up in a very quick couple of sentences. We talked about modern concurrent estates. Uh, the three are the tenancy in common, the joint tenancy, and the tenancy by the entirety. We talked about how you can alter those uh, co-tenancy either through severance, which is taking a joint tenancy, making a tenancy in common, or partition, which is where it breaks apart, you divide the land, and partition happens either by partition to sell or partition by kind. We also talked about some of the duties that are owned, uh, what the uh, co-tenants have a prorated share about, and then we talked about 
uh, marital property, uh, the separate property system, the community property system, and then the, it talked a little more details about the tenancy in the entirety, as well as defining marital property and how uh, that may impact couples who are cohabitating as well. As their summary, that's code uh, concurrent ownership. Have a great one. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Law Schoolers. Before I let you go, there are four things I want to say. The first thing is if you enjoyed these episodes and if you enjoyed the website, I would invite you to go and join Law Schoolers Pro. And you can do that by going to lawschoolers.com slash join. It's a way for you to support us, but there's also a lot of features there that I think you will enjoy. Second thing is that nearly all of our episodes are unedited. The only ones that aren't are pre-law materials, and the reason for that is so you can actually see the legal material in its raw form as I'm learning it as well. The third thing is that the information contained in these episodes are specifically only for educational purposes. They're not to be used as legal advice, and with that, the fourth thing is if it is used as legal advice, we are not liable. That is, law schoolers is not liable for any legal outcomes. Thank you again for enjoying the show. Have a good one.